Welcome to the Hadassah Collective. I'm your host, Claire Marinan. The Hadassah Collective podcast brings together a carefully curated selection of my most trusted and inspiring innovators from every area of the health and wellness space. I invite my guests to freely share their gifts, their wisdom, their journeys, and their diverse points of view, discussing a whole range of topics, including yogic science, present-day philosophy, integrated diet and fitness, modern mental health, non-denominational religion, and holistic lifestyle. All of this to inspire our community with accessible tools to align each individual with who they truly are created to be, to consciously evolve their lives and extend their unique divine light into the world. In this episode, I speak with Iona Holloway, the best-selling author of Ghost, Why Perfect Women Shrink, and the creator of Muck and Gold and the Soul Breathwork app, which is an app that I personally use each day. In this episode, we cover a variety of topics from perfectionism, their dilemma and challenges as the gifted, competent child, life beyond restrictive eating, inner child healing, an embodiment and empowered, authentic visibility. I'm a big fan of Iona's fluff-free, no-bullshit approach to self-empowerment, and I think you will be too. Hi, Iona. Welcome to the Hadassah Collective. I'm so, so looking forward to having this conversation with you, um, deep diving into Ghost and also Brave. Um, So welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be here, and it's nice to hear a kind of British voice as well. <laughs> it's somewhat comforting, isn't it, when you've been away from home for a while? It certainly is. It certainly is. Sure. So why don't we just start off with, if you can give our listeners just a brief overview of who you are and um, what you do and um, whereabouts on the earth you are at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, So my name's Iona. I'm originally from Scotland, but I've lived in Boston uh, for the best part of the last decade. And I moved to the US when I was 20, when I was recruited to play collegiate sports, uh, which was one of those adventures that I had no idea what I was getting myself into until I was here. Um, And now I work as a coach, Um, I'm an author and a speaker. And I work with strong but invisibly struggling women um, in helping them become visible first to themselves and then to the world through sharing their gifts. Um, my book, uh, my best-selling book, Ghost Why Perfect Women Strength, came out in January. I'm excited to chat a little bit more about that today. Um, and then I'm also in the process of founding Brave Thing, which is going to be a like wider platform to continue to share my kind of blunt, kind, but creative take on self-healing, self-development um, for, for strong women who perhaps don't always think that they are able to receive help from others. Um, and as a former ghost, as a former lone wolf, I see the founding of Brave Thing as me really giving back and sharing everything I've learned in my own healing journey um, to help those who also feel invisible um, and alone. So I'm really happy to be here to chat more about it. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I was, I'm a real big fan of your um, book, Ghost. I thought that it was just such an, an honest and, um, and deep portrayal of um, your own personal experience and sort of in, presented in a way that, that really, um, I think, definitely connected with me and I'm sure it's connected with many other people in quite a deep way. And it's so intertwined, obviously, with your personal story. So I guess we can start at the beginning. And um, you grew up in Scotland. You're from Scotland. And what did your childhood look like? And how did that sort of shape uh, shape the beginnings of this story? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it informs everything. I think anyone who thinks that we just experience our childhood and then step over some kind of boundary and become adults and forget everything that happened there. Uh, we're kidding ourselves. Uh, I really believe that we establish our b- blueprints for both our identity and the way that we find our way to survive and make our own space um, in the world in those formative years. And I always like to say this and reinforce it is that ghost is not a witch hunt. Um, exploring 
uh, your, the impact of your childhood on your life is not a witch hunt. It's not a blame game. It's not ruminating on the past. It's really understanding. It's kind of like an archaeological dig into who was I? Like, how did I become myself? And how is the way that I learned to be in this world still impacts me now? Um, and for me, I very much grew up as what I would call an invisible child. Uh, which then became a ghost woman. So I, in ghosts, I classify an invisible child as a child who's very much on her own from the start. And often the reason why she's on her own is because she's perceived as an incredibly competent and strong first child and then young woman. And um, I was the child that no one worried about. I was independent I took care of myself and I also really shone I really shone in school everything came quite easily to me for a long time um, and over the period of my childhood and into early adulthood the story of she's perfect must be easy for her she doesn't struggle became wrapped around me and really formed this core identity and belief in myself that one I was expected to be perfect two I wasn't allowed to struggle and three, any indication of vulnerability or not immediately getting something or being the best at something, it felt like it was going to be an annihilation. And perhaps just you listening to this, maybe you've had your own experience of that. But how that ended up becoming embodied in me was through the really ruthless manipulation, shrinking and starving and controlling of my body. And um, I talk about it as my embodied suffering. It was almost the way I channeled all of the things that I wasn't allowed to express, the emotions that I didn't feel safe to express. I channeled that energy into the control of my body. Um, and so I don't actually, in my own healing, I'm at that point now where I don't really talk about it as an eating disorder. I really more talk about it as the way I exercise my control and energy and channeling of pain into the shrinking of my body. It became my coping strategy. It became the way I felt both strong and seen. Um, and over the years, that just intensified and um, it grew in its own way. And soon that very experience, which had once been a very protective way that I took care of myself, became a really, really, really big problem um, in my life. And it took nearly 20 years for me to be honest about the fact that it was a problem. And that's that's what brought that's what kind of brought me here today was finally deciding that that was something that needed to change. Incredible, incredible. And um, I think just as you were speaking, I sort of just noticed a really interesting paradox there as the invisible child versus from the outside perspective. An outsider looking in, it was probably, you're so visible. You know, mm -hmm. and so there's that, it's that disconnect, that kind of terrifying disconnect of how I'm really feeling inside, but how people are experiencing me in the world. And I think that that's really something important to, um, to recognize, to be able to heal as well. Yeah. And I, I think so many of the women I work with operate under that. That is the tension of their lives. It is the, that external perception that others have, that mask or that performance I often say this about the kind of women that resonate with my work. We're not lacking in the glitter. Like we're doing, we're not most of the time we're doing pretty well. We can point to perhaps our career that's been good or achievements that we've had, or we have visible gifts that people reinforce for us. Um, but those almost mask that underbelly, that feeling of I can't show any of this because they think I'm really strong. They think I'm perfect. I can't in any way talk about the fact that sometimes stuff's hard for me. Uh, in Ghost, I call this being gaslighted by your gift. That's what it feels like, that disconnect between the external perception of how people experience us and our internal reality, which is often very different, certainly was for me. Absolutely. And I think something else that you touched on the book that really resonated with me was... Um, you know, you are never, it, it's actually positive reinforcement. You know, I feel so bad for parents listening to this because it's like, of course, you want to encourage your children 
in their gifts and to really shine and you know that's that's amazing but I think that there was a really important lesson that you touched on in the book about you never learned how to fail you never learned that you would be loved if you did fail you know and I I think that that's something um something really really important and something that I noticed in my own life as well and um so can you speak to that a little bit yeah of course um I think that's I think I say something like I never, yeah, I never realized that I could be bad at something and loved in spite of that failure or vulnerability or weakness. And something that I want to make really clear is that my parents were not parents that were putting like pressure on me in the sense of verbal pressure. Like there was none of that. They weren't overbearing. They weren't saying you must do this. It was more the kind of um, collective feeling of what was reflected back to me. It was almost about the way that other people were talking about me, not directly to me. So teachers telling parents how talented I was, friends telling parents how talented I was. This whole story around Iona's not someone that struggles. Iona's naturally very gifted. Iona's such a strong, independent, like black sheep kind of confusing little girl these were all the stories that became who I was and I think that for some people I know this is different I know for some of my clients parents are very involved in their lives and again that setting of a standard ends up having its own challenges when we're not safe to just do what we want or when the the pressure is coming externally Um, and I think that for me I always like to say, like, we come into the world the way that we are. We come in with specific tendencies. I'm pretty sure I came out in this, like, I was born into this world, like an independent and relatively strong and resilient child. And then the inputs that landed in that system distorted and reinforced that in ways that ended up being painful um, and destructive. So, no, I never learned that I could get a B and that would be okay. I never learned how to be middle of the class. All I ever had was A's, captains, representing countries, getting free scholarships to universities, even though people had never seen me play, getting raises without asking for them. I had no idea who I was if none of that was there. Um, And that is a terrifying, terrifying feeling because over years it compounds into a level of performance and pressure that like the longer it goes and the more evidence you have that your life is easy and the more that's reflected back to you, the the stakes get so, so high. All you can do is like put your head down and keep going because what happens if you don't? Yeah, and you're just paddling under the surface to keep it all going and I think it's also that you sort of maybe never had the opportunity to really discover who you really were without these things, right? That's something that then I think the longer that goes on for, the scarier that reality becomes. You know, the bigger the gap between the performance and who you really are becomes, and therefore it, it becomes even scarier to face that. So I think that's interesting. And also, what advice would you give to parents that I know listen to this podcast that are you know that have these children that just are so naturally capable and in some ways it's so funny because you know when you're a child voicing parents is like this godlike authority figure kind of thing and I feel really blessed to say that I know without a shadow of a doubt that even though my parents are flawed human beings they really did want the best for my brother and I so it was never a case of them pushing their own agenda And it's so funny now to observe some of my friends with children and they're sort of like, with some of their kids, they're so kind of gifted and so independent that they almost feel out of their depth that they don't really have anything to add as a parent, you know? And so what advice would you give to parents who sort of feel that way and do have these children that are gifted? They want to encourage these beautiful gifts in them, but they also want to encourage them to explore who they really are. Yeah, it's a beautiful question. Um, and again, I, the, um, what I'm offering here is from 
like the perspective of not yet being a parent. So I can only really speak as an invisible child, I guess. Um, I think that a huge part of what I was missing in my development as a gifted child was any kind of sense of emotional intelligence, like any kind of sense of like introspection or any kind of sense of how is my body actually feeling or is there a safe place for me to express my emotions? Is that, are there spaces where I have the capacity to do that, the safety to do that? Um, I don't really think I had no access to those experiences like the talking the talking about emotions the talking about pressure and those kind of explicit conversations were not something that I never had it was always the defaulting that Iona's fine Iona's got it Iona's got it handled um so I I feel like at some point in the work that I do in in building brave thing it is going to be about can we get emotional intelligence, awareness and self-regulation and practicing of vulnerability? Are these things that we can learn in school? Are these things that parents can learn in and of themselves so they can share them with their children? Um, in my work that I do now, I call it the installation of baseline awareness and kindness. These are not tools that I learned until I was nearly 30. Like these, like those kind of tools were not things that I even had conscious awareness of. So that's what I would, that's what I would offer. I would also offer let your children play, like in whatever capacity that is, where what they're doing doesn't have outcome on top of it, or there isn't an expectation of what they should be achieving, um, or things like that. I think play for gifted children falls out of our lives very young because our, our, our gifts are recognized and then they're immediately channeled, like they're channeled into performance. And that's how, we, that's how our worth becomes externalized because the things that are naturally beautiful about us become things that we can like commoditize or use or advance us. Um, and we really need space play we really need space to do things for no reason other than pure enjoyment and those are again those are all things that I've had to relearn as like someone in my late 20s and early 30s what's fun (laughs) absolutely absolutely I totally I totally understand what you're saying and um so let's talk about the the moments that the the rubber really meets the road with you in in your own life and that I guess these sort of dark nights of the soul moments and when you sort of really realize like I'm 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 trying to control but I'm actually not in control of this and this is this has gotten beyond um beyond a point that's actually in my control um, in terms of I know you don't call it disordered eating but um in terms of the physical effects on your body and where it's sort of came to you that it like something has to change yeah um it really for me came down to a point where my body just started to give up um so for context for perhaps those who haven't read ghost um i was very much a restrictive eater but also a binger and um, i wasn't someone that used purging my way of controlling for what felt like or where like large binges, whereas over-exercising. Um, so those were the different ways that I managed and manipulated my body. And I would say that I always call it, like I would go through phases of being very successful. So where I was being very adherent to whatever ridiculous diet I was on. And I was also doing really well with exercise and the phases of the binging were minimized, but it required so much willpower and because I had no other coping strategies, because binging was actually the way I let myself numb, feel nothing at all, escape the pressure of my perfect life, um, that was the only coping strategy I had. So it always came back. So my weight would vary, um, like I'm going to say like through my 20s, but it only ever really changed by five pounds, maybe 10. Most people had no idea. Like they didn't notice uh, the changes whatsoever, but it felt monstrous to me. 
um, and the intensity to which I dieted and restricted and exercised increased. So by the time I was in my late 20s, I was tracking everything down to the macro. Um, I had a coach. I would send photos of myself basically naked, front, back, sides. Every week, she would reduce my calories further. Um, and I mean, I, I asked her to do that. So she was only doing what I asked her to do. Um, I was also exercising at this point up to four hours a day, like morning sessions after work immediately going as well. Um, and at this point, my skin was hurting. I would say I was in a very numb, um, again, I don't like I don't like to diagnose anxiety or depression because I see them more as like stages of the nervous system that you're inhabiting, but I was very kind of disassociated. I was very, very numb and low. Um, and it got to a point where like I didn't have a period most of my 20s and I just could no longer adhere to the strictness of my regimes. Um, so I would start diets and binge within two hours of starting them. And it really felt like my body was reaching this point of like, it was like, we can't do this anymore. Um, and the most sort of distilled memory I have of this is one summer for a whole week, taking the week off work and eating close to 10,000 calories a day. I would just, I would go and exercise for two hours, which was stupid. Um, and then once my partner was out of the house, I would just basically eat until I passed out and do that. And I felt crazy. I felt like I was, I felt like I was an insane person. It felt like I had no control over myself or my body or anything anymore. Um, and you're right, it was very much a dark night of the soul and ghost, I call it the reckoning. It was really that moment of, we can't do this anymore. This is not working. I didn't, it was at that point where I would look at the mirror and not even recognize my own face. I just said, no, I felt so broken. Um, and it was at, it was really at that point of feeling like this can't get lower um, that I, I was surrendered enough to choose to, I basically was forced to find a new way. And um, I think in Alcoholics Anonymous, like they call this like hitting the bottom. That's really what it, that's really what it felt like for me. Um, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that bottom because it made my next step easy. It's like, not this. Okay, what then? Yeah. And, um, and what was that next step? Like what, what, um, different wellness modalities and um, practices supported you in moving through those next steps. And was, yeah. it like a, was it a sort of linear, a linear process for you? Was it a, a linear process or was it, a, okay, let's take this next step and then, oh my God, I can't do this. I have to revert back to my exercise and binging. Or was mm. it that moment that you were like, I can't do this anymore. And then you moved straight out. of <laughs> Great question. Um, I would love to say that I never did any of my destructive behaviors any again ever, not even destructive, wildly protective behaviors. I never used them in any like ever again. And the reality of any healing journey is that you're going to fall on your face over and over and over again. You're going to go back to because again, it was my coping strategy. Restriction was my coping strategy. Binging was my coping strategy. Exercise were my coping strategies. And it took time for me to displace those with more like beautiful and empowered coping strategies that didn't cause me physical and emotional pain. Um, but one thing I did do, and I this was pretty linear, was I did stop dieting. I completely stopped tracking, controlling my food. I completely stopped weighing myself. And um, I very much did that. Um, and that was hugely important and beneficial for me because we don't actually realize when we're in a state of survival and barely eating and barely sleeping because I don't have enough food in my body to sleep. It's incredible what just eating enough and sleeping enough raised my level of ability to even begin to notice other things about myself. Um, so that was one part of it that was pretty linear. Um, but in terms of understanding myself, gaining awareness of who I was, why I was the way that I was, 
that all comes in peaks and valleys. I never like to talk about steps back. I just don't believe in that that model of regression. Um, it's really more just like increasing your capacity to sit with what is and find a way to not leave yourself lying on the floor. Um, so, but I mean, there's kind of, I guess, expansion and contraction in your ability to sit with yourself. Um, and I took a non-traditional, I guess, approach. I didn't go to traditional therapy. Um, I enrolled in a group program, uh, but I also was a true student. Um, I started really, because there's only ever, I always say this to my clients, there's only so much you can do in an hour long call a week. There's only so much you can do with what material or supportive materials provided for you. If your goal is for change, like real change, felt change, a real difference in the way you're living your life, you have to prioritize it. You can't expect anyone else to do your healing for you. It's an embodied experience. It has to be felt through and it can't be thought through and no one is coming to save you. So we have to learn how to do that ourselves. It's beautiful. And I mean, that's why I do this work to have an empathic someone on the other side who gets it, who's supporting you, who's holding space for you longer, perhaps, than you can do it for yourself. That's all beautiful. And I'm a big believer in that. Um, but I am also a big believer in being a self-guided student and practitioner of, of, of your healing work. Um, no one's going to do it for you. So I would say I did a mixture of group coaching. I got really into taking a more embodied approach. So breath work, understanding things from a trauma-informed lens, visualizations, using creativity, uh, which I love to do now with my clients, um, and bringing the body along for the ride, like healing the body as much as the mind is being healed, the body and the soul are also coming back to life as well. Um, so I've been through like loads of phases and stages and things that used to resonate with me don't anymore. And that's all part of being a student. Uh, but I'm a big believer in finding someone who can witness you, who can see you, especially as a ghost woman. Yeah. Having someone who sees you is huge. And also learning how to see yourself is huge. Because once you are able to witness yourself um, that's also when you can start being seen in the world for who you actually are and building your capacity for bravery there as well whatever that looks like for you I agree I totally agree I think, and you know almost validating yourself and your sort of right to exist in the world mm -hmm. feeling exactly what you're feeling is like the important step and I love that you said said in quite these words but like taking responsibility for your own healing as well I think that that's something very very important because I also think it's incredibly valuable and in whatever you're embarking on to have a coach you know I think yeah. or, or someone that you, you know that is ahead of the ahead on the path further along the yeah. path than you are but I also think that it's like it kind of um it can really breed this sort of codependent or you know dependent mm -hmm. expression of that and I think the only way to navigate those um, expansion and contraction moments is to be able to you're the only one that can really witness that and so yeah. to be able to work through those like you really have to have that responsibility yourself to recognize you know okay I'm going I'm going back there I'm moving out of this I'm going back there and, and really I think you can only do that for yourself yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, it's that fine balance, I think, especially with the book, the kind of book that Ghost is, the woman that I wrote it for, where a lot of us are islands. We're very practiced in being over here by ourselves, handling it. Um, and so there is that balance of can I be witnessed? Can I allow myself to be held by someone? Can I practice my vulnerability in a really safe space? And um, a huge, I mean, I see that so much of my role when I'm working with women is I'm the place where you practice bringing yourself in all of your imperfection and your incompleteness. And the days where you show up and you are not doing great, you show up anyway, 
because you're practicing being seen in that in the ways that you were not able to do when you were tiny, when you were younger. That's you practicing being seen. That's you healing just by showing up. Um, and also, yes, like I this was kind of I wouldn't I won't say drilled into me, but it very much landed in me from perhaps a very young age and then reinforced from a different angle when I started doing this work, no one is coming to save you. No one is responsible for your healing. The only person that can do that work is you because you are in your body and you are the scrapbook of memories and moments that have come to be who you are. And so you really are the only person who can bear witness to that. Like other people can support you in it, um, but unless you're really willing to turn turn your eyes inwards, knock on that door and say, like, what is going on here? I'm ready to actually see myself. I'm not, I'm not out here pretending, like manipulating my external reality to try to create this perfect pretense. I'm really looking inwards. And then the magical part is that once we actually get honest and look inwards, and actually see ourselves for who we are and start to feel that our external world takes care of itself. It shifts to reflect our inner reality. Um, and But again, you are you. Like, I, I am me, you are you. You have to be that person for yourself. Like, no pill, no protocol, no method, no beautiful coach with all the knowledge in the world is going to give you that. You have to give that gift to yourself. And it doesn't have to be every day for 17 hours, but what you can tolerate and then practice and grow from there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about what is a ghost woman and an invisible child? And why do you feel it's important to put a name to the experience that you describe in the book? Oh, I love this question because... It's a, it was a challenging one for me because I found labels to be, they can be deeply unhelpful, um, especially when they pathologize things or symptomize us or diagnose us in any particular way. Um, the reason I landed on Invisible Child and Ghost Woman because they felt like very pure distillations and expressions of lived experiences very much tailored to the idea of being seen or not being seen, being revealed or being completely hidden. Um, so I don't have sort of a like a Merriam-Webster definition of an invisible child other than it's a child that doesn't that doesn't get help, someone who doesn't feel um, seen in the truth of who they are, which turns into a ghost woman. So a woman who hides in plain sight often a strong but invisibly struggling woman. So I think both, both. I mean, they're obviously connected by invisible and ghosts, but it really is connected to that feeling of us being seen in ways and invisible in ways. And what are some of the behavioral indicators that someone might be a ghost? Or do you think that ghost women tend to know instinctively that something's wrong? I don't think we tend to know it instinctively because we're often very positively validated for our coping strategies. And um, like I said, like we're normally very positively reinforced for all the ways that we struggle. So in all of our overworking and in all of our overachieving and in all of our strength and in all of our independence, these are all things that are positively reinforced by society in a way that being a woman who's like really sweet and also sort of in service of others that's that's a that's like a different thing um I would say that in general ghost women trend towards the opposite it's more like that um high achieving run through a concrete wall very strong and sort of island-like woman um that's like that's the sort of difference or distinction that I would make in, in the experience that I've had doing th through my own life and also through the work that I've done um, with my clients. Yeah, um, yeah. like 
harder texture. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I also, something else I think that um, I've also noticed in the work that I do is ghost women are women who have an incredible capacity to hold. So, for example, like some of my clients have this like massive emotional capacity to feel intensity. So perhaps you would like you would label them as highly sensitive or highly empathetic. And I look at it more as just having this huge capacity and gift to feel things and to hold things and how that is a beautiful thing that often ends up getting weaponized. Um, so that's another thing that I've noticed as well uh, with my clients. If they're not as, if they're not that sort of hardened steel column, they're this like incredible sponge like entity that's able to feel massively, uh, which ends up again being, it can be really challenging to know how to use that in an empowered way. Yeah, it reminds me of a story. When I first went to, to a therapist actually this holistic psychotherapist and I was so against any kind of therapy I always just thought it was the most self-indulgent thing to pay someone to talk about yourself I just thought it was ridiculous yeah. and um, I remember sitting down with her and before it even said anything she said oh you're a really strong girl and I was like yeah I am you know and I, I you know I always thought that was a was a compliment and she just like sort of gave me this knowing look and was like sometimes you know you can be too strong for too long and I was it was the first moment that I ever realized hang on maybe I have weaponized this capacity for strength right and so yeah that's a really interesting uh, really interesting parallel and something I sort of want to sort of pivot back to is in the way that society that um it's positively reinforced. The destructive behaviors or the, the behaviors that are harming you are sort of positively reinforced. And I think, I think I'm probably about five years older than you. Um, but when I was in high school, high school age or secondary school in England, um, it was really a culture of size zero. Every celebrity was, you know, trying to be size zero. Nicole Ritchie and Victoria Beckham were disappearing before our eyes, you know, in the press. And when I look back now at some of the things that I was doing, I was just like, this is insane, you know, mm -hmm. but at the time, everybody was doing it. So it was yeah. like reinforced, like, I mean, even at school, like my friends and I would talk about like what we had eaten, you know, and sort of hold each other accountable. And this was no one picked up on the fact that this is crazy, you know, yeah. those sorts of things. And yeah, again, the positive achievements, things like that. Did you feel that way as well, that like society was just supporting and praising these behaviors that you sort of instinctively knew at some level were kind of destroying? Yeah, I mean, 100%. And I think that I, for me, I definitely saw the sort of like the sort of fashion, heat magazine, like Grazia, Vogue stuff. And then also I was, I was this high performance athlete as well. So I was looking at the athletes in the Olympics and at Wimbledon and, um, and looking at their bodies and almost aspiring more towards that. It was this, it wasn't so much this like tiny thin thing, although I probably would have loved that as well. But I was seeing these like very strong, but tiny bodies and thinking and really feeling like that was something that I should have been, should have been looking like. And even my size and my body type and all that kind of thing was reinforced at all of the hyper, like, at the international training camps I would go to um, when I was a collegiate athlete, it was always noted when I came back insanely ripped for preseason. These were all things that were possibly reinforced. And you're, you're right. It's we're all swimming in water and we don't realize what we're drinking and um, because it's just so normalized. And I think that that was, that was a huge part and I see it as a huge part of the continued work is being able to notice a system of oppression, which to be honest, like the manipulation or a presentation of the female body is very much 
a system of oppression that's been weaponized and monetized by wellness culture, by diet culture, by by health and medical and all that kind of thing. And understanding when when you can start pointing to see that's a system of oppression, where am I acting still as that system of oppression? Where have I embodied that and acted like that? And I like to kind of raise the awareness of this because it's so easy to look at ourselves and think, how did I break myself? Like, like I really must hate myself. Like, I really must not care about myself if I'm struggling in these ways, if I'm harming myself, if I'm doing things that don't make sense. Um, we're taught this. It's in the water. But it is, and again, that is when it's our responsibility to become really, really, really aware of what we're taking in and where we're acting as a system of oppression and freeing ourselves from that prison. And we have to free ourselves over and over and over again because it's insidious and it's sneaky and it makes sense, um, but it's really hurting us in so many ways that we don't have awareness of. There's something else I sort of wanted to touch on in your, something I really enjoyed about your book is that a lot of times I've read, you know, different biographies, autobiographies by people describing sort of um, disordered eating and it feels very like victim energy, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it just never resonated with me because during those times, I didn't feel like I was attacking myself. I didn't yeah. feel like I was weak. I felt so powerful. And almost it was almost my way of feeling better than competing with someone else. And I really yeah. saw that, you know, other people, oh, lack of control. They're so undisciplined. Look at, you know what I mean? It, it, came, it felt very empowering for me. And I felt that in your book that I was like, okay, finally, somebody kind of gets that. And yeah. You know, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that that's often portrayed like that, you know, oh, this poor person, she's wanting to just disappear and she's starving herself, whereas actually it felt very empowering at the time. 100%. Um, and I think that in shrinking my body, I became even more, I became more visible. But it was a way of channeling all of that pain into visibility that empowered me rather than weakened me. I have, I, I'll, I'm very honest about this. I've never felt stronger, more on purpose, more um, focused, more alive than those moments where I had nothing in my body. It felt like I, I kind of transcended human experience. Yeah. They really felt like spiritual experiences of emptiness, of being so maniacally focused on emptiness it felt so, so powerful. And you're right. Like, I think that there's, and again, I people have different experiences, but my experiences was one of power. Shrinking gave me so much power. And it never was at a point where I was perceived as weak because of it. I never got to that sort of bone snapping yeah. phase of things. I was so powerful in my smallness. And there was, and there like remains grief around that because I um, I don't like to say on the other side, but I've come so far from having to dominate myself in that way to feel safe. I've been able to loosen all of, like a huge amount of that rigidity and control, which for reference has given me so much energy to pour into actually fulfilling my childhood dreams of owning my own business, of writing a book, of doing lots of creative things and traveling and, be, and being a lot freer and maybe not traveling in the last couple of years. Um, but all of that energy has redistributed. It's, it's, it's allowed me to create so much more of the life that I actually wanted all this time. And I still grieve that tiny body. I still grieve that feeling of power because I've never touched that feeling since. I really haven't like publishing my book was an incredible achievement 
um, but it didn't land in that way. And there's there's grief about that. I like I, I like to be honest about that. There are some things that you have to let go because you're wanting to be human now. You're wanting to live now. And there are some of those kind of very like robotic, ghostly characteristics that I just don't have access to anymore. And I'm very much getting on board with the fact that that's okay. Um, because it was almost like they were beyond what a human should experience. That's how intense they were. And um, do you think that it's do you think that it's necessary to have those rock bottom moments where you realize I can't do this anymore, or even physically your body is telling you I really can't do this anymore? Um, or do you think someone listening to a podcast like this, or someone who's read your book? identifies with it um, yeah you know is is that the process as well do you need the rock bottom moments to really be able to jump out of that um that area i love that you asked this question because i really don't think you do need rock bottom moments um at, like i really don't think you do and it's funny that you mentioned this because a lot of my clients i wouldn't say have a rock bottom moment um but it's more that they've identified with the stories and the experiences that I talk about. So that feeling of assumed ease, all of those stories about it must be easy for you. Even the story of like, oh, she's so, like everything comes so easy to her. She must be perfect. And that set that impossible feeling of expectation. And then also that disconnect between the inside and outside experience. A lot of my clients don't even struggle with food. Like I'm thinking about all of my clients right now. I would say eight. It, like 80% of them like we don't talk about food that's like not something that I actually really talk about much at all day to day and it's a fascinating thing because it was such a huge part of my own experience but a lot of my clients come to me I would say on more of a visibility mission more of a sense of can I get honest about what I'm actually experiencing and they come to me because I am honest I am very blunt, I'm very open, and they see something in that, in that being able to be seen in that way that resonates with them. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do with my clients is very much about them making themselves visible to themselves so that they can be visible in the world that they actually, in a, in a way that they actually want to. So for example, some of my clients come to me to like meet themselves so that they be can become that person who has a career that's more aligned for them or so that they can finally use their beautiful, beautiful creative writing skills to perhaps share their work and maybe one day write a book or they're designers who come because they just can't quite share their work because they're not visible to themselves first. Um, so that's a lot more of the work that I actually do day to day. It's like getting safe in your own bravery and vulnerability so that then you can use that out in the world. I say this over and over and over again, and I think it's really, really important. I think it's often misunderstood in sort of general wellness. The point of healing is not to keep healing. The point of healing is to heal enough so that you know who you are, so that you can then express yourself in the world that the way you've always wanted to. And what that means is, remembering who you were all along and being more of that woman over and over and over and over again. The point of healing is not to heal. The point of healing is to heal enough so that then you can be visible and live a life that you actually enjoy and that feels like you. I, feel, I believe so strongly in that um, because I think we can get trapped in this cycle of I should always be healing. I should always be healing. I should always be in development. And it's more like, no, like, install baseline kindness and awareness, heal what you need to, be brave with yourself first, and then go and be brave in the world. That's like a really beautiful and generous life to live, in my opinion. Absolutely, and I think I always sort of use the analogy of like we're born into this world purely authentic, you know, and that it's like a, a brand new light bulb that you put up in an attic. And as you go through the world, you just pick up dust and everything like that and the healing process is sort of cleaning away that dust so that you kind of shine your own radiance brightly yeah and um and and that's all it is i think that we definitely in the wellness world 
um, in a similar way to the diet world, actually, we need to yes. this, I've got to fix something. When I read yep. gold, then I'll be good. You know, it's this exact same mentality. And so I, I think that's interesting that you don't um, talk too much about food, even though it was a part of your process. I just see that as a symptom. It's a very tangible way to, to claw back some control, you know, and yeah. so it can be expressed in so many different ways. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's really interesting. So let's talk about some of the, um, some of the modalities that you used um, to, and you maybe are still using actually. I know that mm-hmm. child work was really a, a big thing for you. And um, it seems to be a theme running through your book for sure. Yeah. So what's the importance of that kind of work and what's your best advice for getting started? Yeah, um, inner child work I love because it can sometimes be hard. It's a beautiful way to build compassion. Um, sometimes when we're adults, it can be hard to find that kindness and compassion and gentleness. And so connecting with younger versions of ourselves, I think is a really useful portal into practicing that kindness it's like giving yourself the childhood that you needed and that perhaps you didn't get in its full expression so I love inner child work and reparenting it's like you heal your past you heal in the present it's a very sort of mutually beneficial experience and I also do a lot of what I would call embodiment based practices Um, I love using breath work and I also love to empower my clients to understand their nervous system and how it's working for them always because so often we can feel shameful about the things that we're using to get through the world but when you look at it from the perspective of my body is always trying to take care of me all my all my nervous system is ever trying to do is is to keep me safe and we can start to have a different lens on how to like beginning to slowly let go of the ways that we're currently regulating our experience. Drinking was the way that I did that, or binging was the way that I did that, and slowly beginning to replace those and also heal the trauma so we can re-regulate that beautiful wiring that's working for us always. Um, So I love doing nervous system work. Breathing, breath work is a big part of that. Um, And then I also love to think of daily practice or not even daily practice but more the practicing of bravery and viewing our lives as creative processes so in a pre- I should say in a previous life for most of my 20s I've worked as a designer and then as a creative director and so I'm a very visual and creative person and a lot of my clients who come to me they may not be artists in any way or even working in a creative way, but they have that part of them. Um, and so I always like to tap in and see how like, how they tap into themselves, whether that's through music or whether that is through more visualization type things or whether that's through like actually making or working on things while we're working together. Um, I love to think of our lives as creative projects that we are endlessly practicing in. Um, And so there's definitely a very sort of creative element to the way that I like to do this work. And I found really resonates and lands uh, with the women that I work with. Wonderful. And um, I really love the black light method. I think it's phenomenal. So can you just explain to the listeners what the Black Light Method is that you created? Yeah, the Black Light Method is really what I just described. So it's really looking at it through the lens of our bodies and in the sense of the regulation of our nervous systems, the understanding of that part of it, the use of embodiment tools and practices, and also understanding our body's story like our body image and why we feel the way we do about ourselves. There's a worth component to it. So I always talk body worth power or body worth gifts. There's a worth component to all of this, which I view more as understanding our identity, how it's formed, where we believe we have value, why we believe we have value, what makes us valuable human beings. Because so often we have massive worthiness wounds and especially as ghost women who are wildly productive and perhaps have that glitter, there's often a lot of that externalization of our worth into what we do and very little like 
integrated sense of I'm worthy regardless of what I do. And so I love to look at that lens. And then the power or the gift component is truly that base of, okay, so once I have awareness of my body, once I have awareness of my worth, as I'm in the process of feeling that, how is the energy that was once looking and suffering and struggling? Where is where is this pulling me now? What gifts do I have to share with this world? How am I actually wanting to use my time and my energy? What does my career look like? What do my relationships look like? What is that one thing that I wish I had worked on all this time that I didn't have the ability to because I didn't believe in myself and I didn't have the energy to do it? And so like for the context for me, that thing was my book. It took me a couple of years to build that foundational sense of self to then be able to say, I'm ready to share this gift with the world that was a childhood dream. It was with me all along and it got lost in the process of all of that invisible struggling embodied war. Now that that part of me is coming back alive again, because I believe in myself, I believe that I can now I get to be generous. Now I get to share my gifts. Now I get to build that business that I used to always talk about. Um, and again, it's not that every per- every person has to start their own business or write a book. I don't care what you do. All I care about is that it's the thing that you actually want to do, that you're actually channeling your gifts in the world. That is such a beautiful thing to do. I always say again, like we're not healing for healing's sake. We're healing so we can be ourselves so that we can live our lives. And a huge part of that is also about being generous, share that with the world in whatever way that makes sense for us. I love this. I love this because I think it's a real sort of antidote to um, this sort of manifestation rhetoric that we hear a lot. And it's a very much a focus on what can I get? You know, and I, mm-hmm. for me, I don't know, like, not that I have anything against manifestation, love it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not, um, for me, it was never the focus. I kind of came into this sort of work because I sort of recognized I'm actually quite good at getting what I want, but there's some, there's a disconnect here because I'm not necessarily enjoying it. Mm-hmm. You know, and other, if, if the things that I want are not making me happy, where are these things coming from? And so I realized there just needed to be this inner alignment that maybe would shift and the things that I want would maybe be different and those things would be more satisfying. So I, I love that. I think it's a real antidote. Also something else I really like about your work, which I find very different, is that there is a recognition of the body and um, mm. sort of almost body first and then through because I think a lot of the practices that we have can be very disconnected from the body and very mind-focused, very psychological-focused. And, um, you know, I think that we forget that our body is holding all of those past experiences and those memories, those emotions. So I think it's so important to be able to um, tap into that and and have that connection. So I think that that's it. Yeah, I love that. And I am with you on the manifestation stuff. I often talk that my my work kind of has like spiritual side eye. I am all about I am all about the magic of the universe. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in the flow of energy. Absolutely. I love all, I've I've experienced it too many times in my life to not, but I can tell you this, that doesn't just fall into your lap. Like we're not, like we are humans, human bodies. We have lived experiences. We have belief systems. Like that has to be examined and felt through, not thought through. And and I talk about this a lot. We have to practice. We have to like allow ourselves to go through a, a process of practicing being ourselves. We can't just manifest stuff out of thin air if we like you said beautifully if we're not internally aligned with ourselves if we don't know who we are how can we possibly know what we need or want if we don't like if we don't know who we are like how can we possibly know that and i like that's why i i love the idea of taking that inside out approach it's like you take care of what's going on inside 
your world is going to shift externally. It can't fail to shift if you're aligning with who you are. Your world is going to reflect who you are in time and with like conscious practice. So much gaslighting going on about like, like hold this one crystal and think about what you want. Like, yes, like beautiful, use whatever tools resonate with you, but you're in process too. You're an active participant in your life. Um, and that's the real world. Like that's living in the real world. Absolutely. And, it, you know, I love all the things. I love all the spiritual materialism, I have to say. But yeah. I won't say that it's necessarily brought me the breakthrough. You know, I think that the, the sort of narrative around, you know, thinking positive, stay in the vortex. And I'm not criticizing any of these manifestation practices. I think they really work for people. And I think, you know, if, if it makes you feel good, do it, you know. I'm not against any kind of practice, actually. Um, but... I can honestly say from my own personal experience that I have never found as much breakthrough in trying to stay positive than actually learning to sit with the discomfort, you know? And in that, the positive comes because I've released the, the discomfort, you know? And so I, I definitely um, am on that page with you in that respect. So, um yeah, let's shift and let's talk about brave things. I think it's something very, very exciting. What can we expect from the experience of brave things? Yeah, thanks for asking about it. So I've um, I've been sort of operating as I went to Holloway for the last year and a bit. Um, and I was really feeling a pull towards moving away from just using my name for things and creating a place and a community and perhaps more of a movement or approach to doing and being um, that was just separate from Iona, the individual. Um, so over the last couple of, not, maybe not last couple of months, over the last month or so, I've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes um, of building up Brave Thing, which is really going to be what all of my speaking, coaching and books, plural, um, will be living under. Um, and it's really going to be, I'm really hoping to bring together some kind of community space, whether that is group coaching programs or just like a slightly lighter touch community space, because I think something um, that I've realized a lot, doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching with um, ghost women, is that there's a huge amount of value in that work. And then there's also a huge amount of value of being witnessed by other women who also have felt that invisible feeling and um, who've had those shared experiences. Um, I talked a wee bit earlier about visible to ourselves and then the world. I found in my work to this point that there's this almost missing piece of visible to ourselves, to each other and to the world. And that's, that's that kind of white space gap that I'm really hoping to fill by creating um, more of a community space for women who identify with that feeling of struggling invisibly and alone, who perhaps will have those island or lone wolf um, tendencies to come and practice their bravery and their vulnerability with other women who get it. So that's what I'm in the process of um, building right now. Um, and so I'm thinking that like by the autumn and by the fall, I'm going to have a really clear vision of what that's um, going to look like. I also view it as, and maybe this is too much detail, I don't know, I think it's important for me is that I want work to be accessible for all um, levels of what people can financially contribute. Um, and while I love one-on-one -on -one work, it is a wee bit ivory tower. It's it's very much for those who can afford it. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to democratize the sharing of this work that changed my life. Um, so the creation of Brave Thing is very much part of that feeling as well. Wonderful. And um, so tell us whereabouts um, our listeners can find you, find your work. 
Yeah. Um, so the best place to find me is uh, ionaholloway.com. Um, and especially ionaholloway.com forward slash gifts. There's lots of free things there. Um, there is a free week of coaching, like future self stuff that I do often in the first few weeks of working with my clients. It's all there, the whole week of coaching. Please take it, it's yours. Um, you can also read the first chapter of Ghost for free. Um, and I think I also have, I have a free ghost reader guide as well. That's something um, that you're interested in. So please take advantage of free things. Um, and then you can also find me mostly on Instagram at the moment. And I own a Holloway there as well. Um, and then in the future, I'll be at bravething.co as well. Um, but we're in the process of building that just now. Wonderful. So exciting. And so what is one practical tip that you could, or a practice that you can leave our listeners with that they can take today? You, oh, I love this question. Um, one of my favorite things to ask myself is under the assumption that I care about myself and then ask the question that we have. Um, I think that we often get into a, why am I like this? Why am I doing this? Why am I like this? I always like to trade that in under the assumption that I care about myself. Why am I doing this thing? Because we're always trying to take care of ourselves. We're always doing it. Even when we don't think we are, we're beautiful, self-protective beings. Um, and like I said earlier, one of the first things that we can install in ourselves is baseline kindness and awareness. And so I love that question as a way to do that. Now, Iona, we have really covered a lot of stuff today, but um, is there anything that you really have in your heart to share that I haven't asked you about? Um, start where you are. You don't have to reach a rock bottom and it's never, ever, ever too late to try something new. If you let yourself be a beginner, you cannot fail. If you allow yourself to practice, you will not fail. It is worth it. It is worth it. Whatever you have to give, to turn towards yourself and prioritize yourself, be generous. It's generous for you and it's generous for the world in time as well. Start small. You'll grow really, really tall. Wonderful, wonderful. And on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for sharing your gifts with the world. Much appreciated. Um, <laughs> see you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is wonderful. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you got some things to take away from our amazing guests' insight. If you did enjoy this episode, please subscribe and also leave us a review. And for more information on the Hadassah Collective, you can visit our Instagram page at Hadassah Collective. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode at the same time next week. And until then, have a wonderful week.